Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. What's up, guys? This is Max here, and I'm really excited to invite you to watch my Color Vision Deluxe Experience live concert on Live by Live this February. It's, it's going to be brilliant. We're playing Blueberry Eyes, Lights Down Low, Love Me Less, all the songs off my album. I hope you can join us. Tickets at livexlive.com slash max, and I'll see you February 27th, only on Live by Live. I think a lot of people are aware that we're spending altogether too much time on our screens, right? And one of the things people are concerned about is eye strain from blue light damage. Eye strain from blue light damage may be leading to what we call digital eye strain. Symptoms of eye strain, blurred vision, headaches, dry, watery eyes. For some, it could even mean heightened anxiety, depression, low energy. Well, Blue Blocks was created to fix this problem and block out the blue light with high-quality lenses. They're beautiful uh, frames also. They really do a good job. Unlike other types of blue light glasses, Blue Blocks are evidence-backed and made under optics laboratory conditions in Australia. The founders were unhappy with the quality and lack of science behind leading blue light blocking glasses brands. Other companies were mass-producing non-evidence-based backed products in China with no understanding about how light impacts our health. Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X, was created to change this with high-quality lenses for daytime, nighttime, and for color therapy exactly in line with the suggested peer-reviewed academic literature. They have over 40 hip frames. They really are nice and come in prescription, non-prescription, and readers. So they have frames for every need. That's right. You can get a prescription reader with the Blue Block. Blue Blocks is also giving back by working in partnership with Restoring Vision in their Buy One, Gift One campaign. For each pair of Blue Blocks glasses purchased, they donate a pair of reading glasses to someone in need. Get your energy back, sleep better, and block out the unhealthy effects of blue light with Blue Blocks. Get free shipping worldwide and 15% off by going to blueblocks.com slash drew or enter code drew at checkout. That is B-L-U-B-L-O-X, B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com slash drew for 15% off or just use that code drew for the same 15% off. Do it now. Uh, hey, everybody, welcome to Dr. Who Podcast and uh, all those usual recommendations to support those that support the Corolla Pirate Ship. And uh, don't forget to check out drdrew.com. And uh, one thing maybe I'll talk to Alex a little bit about, you can't really go to my, well, you will be able to go to my YouTube page by the time this airs, but I was a nearly deep plat- platform by YouTube, Alex Berenson. Thank you for joining me. Isn't that crazy? Uh, I didn't realize. I didn't realize that it had gotten that bad. Well, uh, I, they told me I have one strike against me, and I was given a list of of policies that are not to be violated. They were a million miles from anything I would ever say, except one of the policies I noticed was you are not allowed to say that someone who's had COVID or has had the vaccine is immune to COVID. And I think I've said as an early recovering with high levels of neutralizing antibody, I am immune to COVID. That's my medical opinion. Maybe that's why they got me. You're not allowed to say that on YouTube? That's that's. I went through the whole list of stuff. That's the only thing I could find that came even close. What, what, is, going, what is going on? Uh, they, what's going on is censorship, my friend. Don't you know about this? They, they, are, they built their algorithms to uh, keep their I, – I don't know what they're doing – my my son, who's a a, a legal a law student, freaked out about the idea that an algorithm and a non medical organization is superseding the concerted opinion of licensed professionals. Right, but here but we are. But they're a private 
company, and as long as it's not based on race or whatever, they can do whatever they want. Um, it's also interesting. How are they monitoring this? It's got to be automated. Correct. So are they looking for certain words and stuff, and then does yeah. it get kicked to a human being? Did they tell you any of that? Couldn't really get a human being. Somebody in my organization was able to get to somebody that told them the decision maker was in Thailand hmm. and probably didn't speak English. Well, so. You know, it's funny. It's funny right? because they, they claim they can't sort of, you know, police the, the not it's not child pornography, but, you know, sort of like the weird, yeah. you know, bathing suit videos of 12 year olds that they get. But like they can police this to every three seconds. It's weird, right? It, it makes yeah. it's it's bizarre. So uh, for, for those of you in the Corolla pirate ship, Corolla world, I'm trying to move people over to drdrew.locals.com. Uh, Twitch TV, I'll send it be over there uh, at Dr. Drew TV. And uh, even I'm going to try Facebook for a while, but God knows if that will last. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't depend too heavily on Facebook yeah, as a platform. Right. That's, anyway, let's talk about you. Uh, let's talk about the book first, and then we'll go back around if people don't know you, which I think most people over here in the Corolla world do. The Power Couple, espionage yes. thriller, unlike anything else you've written. Tell us about it. So, yeah, so, uh, so my backstory on this is that, you know, I was a reporter for the New York Times for like 10 years, but in 2006, I actually wrote a, a novel, um, well, it came out in 06, and it was a spy thriller called The Faithful Spy, um, you know, which drew a little bit on my experiences in Iraq as a reporter, but it was really, you know, it was fiction, and, um, and it starred, or the hero is this guy named John Wells, who was this, uh, you know, a spy who converted to Islam to go undercover, uh, and, uh, you know, as a result, neither the CIA nor, um, Al Qaeda really trusted him. Okay. Mm. So people liked that book. It, it became a number one times bestseller in paperback in 2008. And ultimately writing spy novels was the reason I left the New York times. I, people, people who don't know me on Twitter, like to say the times fired me, which, uh, which is, which is, you know, as true as a lot of what's said on Twitter, ah. um, so, so, I, so I left to write these novels and, um, and then, you know, in 2017, 2018, I started working on this book, the, the nonfiction book about cannabis that we've talked about that was Tell Your Children. And that was sort of my return to nonfiction. But you, you wrote but, 12, 12 spy novels. 12 spy novels, a book a year. That's wow. sort of a pretty, I'm sorry, pretty standard um, rate for somebody who's writing commercial thrillers. They, all with John you know, Wells. And I'd like to, John you know, Wells like at the center. What's that? John Wells at the center of all of them. John, John Wells at the center. Um, how come and, this isn't uh, TV so, yet? How um, come this isn't a multi-part Netflix? Or is it? You just can't talk about it. <laughs> well, there's a backstory there that I'm not going to go oh. into. Um, let's just say that the 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 basic architecture of the Faithful Spy is remarkably similar to the architecture of a little show called Homeland. Oh, and, and that I know the Homeland guys. Oh. And Saul Berenson is a character on Homeland. Oh my god. Um, so they didn't buy the rights for me. They named a character after me. I, I think I would have preferred the money, but wow. that's, a, that's a long story. Anyway, um, so I write this, tell your children. Um, but really what's another funny thing is people always accuse me. I'm a grifter. I make all this money from selling these booklets. In reality, writing commercial fiction that's pretty, you know, that does reasonably well, you you, you make more money than most journalists do. I mean, it's just, you know, novel, not, not like, you know, not that I'm JK Rowling or anything, but if you write a book a year and people buy it, you do okay. So, so I, so after I wrote Tell Your Children, I wanted to get back to writing novels, and the novel that I wrote is called The Power Couple, and it's not a John Wells novel. Mm. It's a novel about uh, this family. Really, they go to Barcelona. 
And the husband and wife both work uh, for in the national security establishment. They're not super senior, but they, you know, they work in the, she works the FBI and he works the NSA and their daughter gets kidnapped in Barcelona and they have to figure out, you know, who took her. Meanwhile, she's trying to escape herself. She's not just, she's not just hiding in a closet like the taken girl. She's, uh, you know, she's actually, or the taken woman. She's, she's actually trying to escape herself. So, so, so she, she's, she's a character that you follow in the novel, you're saying? Yes, yeah, she's yeah. pretty resourceful. Yeah. But the book is really about their marriage. <laughs> yeah. And when you get to the end, I think most readers will find themselves questioning what kind of marriage I have. <laughs> oh, why? <laughs> and, and, and let's just say I'm not as bad as the guy in the book, I hope. Um, but uh, Can I interview but, your you wife know, for a second? <laughs> is she available? Yeah. Let's see no, what's she's going not on allowed here. to talk about this. <laughs> is your daughter um, around or is she hiding in a closet somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um, I will be hiding in the closet after this interview, but, but no, so she, so she, so, so, so the thing about this book is I, I really wanted to write a book that wasn't, you know, based around sort of this lone wolf male character. This is about, you know, it's really, I say husband and wife, it's really wife and husband. Two of the three main characters are female. And I wanted to, you know, see if I could do that. And, you know, so far the early reviews uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's some professional reviews. There's also a lot of reviews from female readers on Goodreads talking about how much they, they like at least the daughter, uh-huh. um, which makes me feel pretty good about about the book. Um, but it really, you know, it's it's sort of half domestic thriller and half uh, espionage. And that's, you know, it's a bit of a mashup and I hope it works. And, you know, I, that's, but uh, but um, it's exciting. Here's the other thing about the book. It's really, I wrote it before COVID, right? So the book I finished in late 2019, and it's really set in the world of 2019. There's no masks. There's no, uh, you know, there's no problems with travel. It's all, it's all about, you know, this sort of ha- relatively happy world. Life as we knew it. Um, right. So, life as so we yeah, knew so it, life as we knew it before COVID. It, exactly. Life as we knew it before COVID and hopefully life as we'll get back to it. But yeah, which people keep I saying will not COVID, happen, but we'll get to that in a minute. Oh, don't say that. I know. I, I disagree with that wholeheartedly. I think we're going to go back to life as we knew it. Plus, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I think people are, I, I are do, sick of And this. this is a discussion we should have because I don't, I don't agree with you. Unfortunately, I do think we'll go back to life as we know, it, but this idea that we're going to have like this roaring twenties, like sex filled decade, I sadly think is uh is untrue. But, okay, we'll get to that. Um, we'll get to that. So, 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 did you uh, for research for this thing? I I've done a lot of uh, consulting and like television writing and stuff, and and I spent a lot of time working with writers going, no, that's not how mm, that's not how it goes. That's not what people would do. That's no, yep. Here's what they would do in that situation. Here's how a relationship really works. A, a lot of that. Uh, did you research that kind of thing, or did you have any advisors? Or well, so so. So, you know, this book, I mean, I always travel for my books. So this book, a lot of it takes place in Barcelona. So I went to Barcelona. You know, the Wells novels take place in places like Saudi Arabia. So for once, I was smart hmm. and I picked some places I'd want to go um, or, you know, but uh, <laughs> but so so uh, so, you know, here's the thing. The book is really more again. It's about the, the marriage and the kidnapping is actually, you know, it's a fairly simple kidnapping. So this isn't me getting to the guts of the NSA and the, no, FBI no, no. I mean, I mean the, the, the marriage, the relationship part, because relationships oh, are very, no, complicated. I, I, no, I, I think if you, if you're in a marriage, you, you know, I, I think that I don't think I could have written this book without being married, but I think when you're in a marriage, you know what marriage is intimately. I mean, I hope, I mean, for better or worse, you, um, you know, and again, this is not my marriage, but obviously you draw on 
Look, I think some people have marriages that are that are really simple, or a few people at least, and I envy those people where you know it really is sort of the platonic ideal, and you know both partners, people you know are simpatico and they want the same things out of life, and and they you know and and today is my day to do the dishes, tomorrow's your day, and we both want two kids and we both want to live in the same place. I mean, but, uh, but, but I think most people, unfortunately, their marriage is not like that. And, uh, and so, and this is a marriage that's a lot, not like that. And, mm. you know, the, the sort of the, the core story of the marriage and, you know, we could spend the whole podcast talking about the book, which I know you don't want to no, do. No, no, I want to talk a lot about story, the book. So go the ahead. The core story of the marriage is that she is very ambitious. She, uh, she, they get married very young, you know, they're about 25 and 23 and she gets pregnant right away. But Becky Bex um, has this plan that she's going to go work for the FBI. That's what she's really, she's wanted to do that for several years when she meets Brian and, and he, he's a smart guy, but he's sort of lazy. And basically, um, basically he's willing to do, what she wants. And that's kind of the term. And she's from this kind of, not super fancy, but this academic family in the Northeast. And, and he's from, you know, a working class family. And so he just basically buys into the idea that, that she's going to be in charge and neither of them really understands what that means. Mm. And one of the cool things about writing the book was looking at the marriage over a long period of time, because when the, the book, the book starts in the, in the mid to late nineties and it ends in 2019. And mm. so, you know, uh, that was sort of fun from the pop culture references and the rise of the internet and everything else. But it was also seeing these people and seeing how, you know, he sort of thought, okay, I don't really mind the fact that this woman is so much more ambitious than I am. But it turns out that in reality, he minded a lot, and, which is and, and that, so and that becomes a problem. That's really interesting. Very few uh, fictional characters cover that kind of historical arc, right? I, one one of the one of the things that I don't think I fully grasp was how much marriages change and morph and shift. It's like tectonic plates shifting, you know. Uh, I've been with my wife for nearly forty years, wow. and and uh, and there's a lot of difference. You know, I look back on some of the stuff. I'm like, oh man, what were we doing? What was that all about? <laughs> and then you know, you sort of shift and morph and get closer in some ways and accommodate certain things. And yeah, it's it's super duper interesting. So that good for you. Well, thank you. Yep. And you know, I hope when you read the book, if you read the book, you find the description of this marriage. Uh, you know that it feels real even if it's not to your taste please uh, please send a copy my way i owe that to you to read the book i will do that i will do it and i'll buy the book if you want me to if you'd rather uh, no 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 no. uh but i will get you i'll get you a copy if you don't have one i I do not have one i would love that that. i will read it uh alexberenson.com b-e-r-e-n-s-o-i-n and also at alexberenson on twitter uh do you want to talk more about the book have we done enough I mean, with it? i mean i i don't want you know i, I don't I want to give say, away the bathwater. you know everything right no no i mean i'd say one more thing which is that i really did want to write a book where the you know the so so the 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 the, the, the girl she's a teenager who gets kidnapped her name's kira the daughter um i did not want it to be um you know 12 scenes of her screaming and right. like hiding in the corner and right. she she wants out okay and she's in so, so so if you think about the parents like the mother is this FBI agent who's 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 tough and tougher than she looks 
and the and the and the father is you know he's he's sharp and he's got you know he's got a little bit of a of a of a devious edge to him mm. and she is their daughter so she sort of combines these two interesting and and she is not you know look she she decides at some point that if she's going to go down she's going to go down fighting and so how long is um, she in captivity for in the, in the book uh so so it's interesting the book is about 20 years but it's also about a weekend so it literally the kidnapping is resolved over the course of uh of of three days mm. so the way the book works is you see her uh, you see Kira be kidnapped at the, you know, like three or four chapters in, you see the kidnapping set up and, and then he, she's kidnapped. And then after a few more chapters, you go back to Rebecca's view of the marriage, mm. then back to the present day, and then back to Brian's view of the marriage. And then again, the present day. And then the last section of the book is jumping ahead uh, six months after the kidnapping has been resolved. Did you so, know uh, you were going to construct it this way or did it happen I, as you were I, writing it? It was sort of organic. Yeah. Um, cause I realized that I couldn't just, I had to have the backstories. The backstories were very interesting and important to me and I couldn't let them, I couldn't shoehorn them in. They had to be their own sections. And I really wanted you to see the marriage from her point of view and then see it from his point of view. And, and, my hope, and you know, I think to the extent readers have a problem with the book, and uh, you know, most most readers again seem to have liked the book so far. If you look on Goodreads, there are some readers out there who feel that the backstories are too long. Writing backstories like that is sort of breaking the first rule of genre fiction, mm. which is that it should always move forward mm. chronologically. Mm-hmm. So if you look at like a James Patterson, these people are really successful; they never stop the momentum. And but that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to write a book that was more serious where the characters have more depth. And to do that, you have to have backstory in my opinion, or, or maybe there are writers who can get away without having backstory, but cause they're just, you know, they're, I, like, they're yeah, talented that way. Or so good. Yeah. But I, I, I needed to do it that way. So, so when you wrote the backstories, did they just flow forward out of your head creatively or did you outline it first in some fashion? Outlined, outlined it first, but I, you know, when, and this is true of the Wells novels too, when people ask me about, oh, I, you know, I want to write a novel. I think I have a novel in me. I, I always say to them, I say, you should outline it. Like, especially if you're a, a new writer, but I think everybody should, but I think new writers especially should, because you don't want to write half of a book, no matter how good it is, and find yourself in a place where you have no idea what's what's going mm-hmm, next. Mm-hmm. So, so I outline my books pretty thoroughly, but as I'm writing, both plot and characters will force me to change. Mm. So, so Kira got tougher as the book went on, uh, the daughter. Um, well, at the same time, for plot reasons, there were elements that I thought I was going to have in that I had to change. Um, and so when it's working well, at least for me, that's how it goes. I know where I'm going and I know where I want to get. But along the way, hopefully there's some like side trips that, you know, that even in the outline, I didn't realize I was going to take. What is therapy exactly? Well, it's whatever you want it to be. Get some tools to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, anger issues, dealing with insecurity in relationships, work stress, whatever it might be. That can be found at BetterHelp. It's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. I've been referring people to BetterHelp and the reports have been outstanding. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your personalized therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. 
It's more affordable and in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really all about. It may or may not be for you, but it's worth looking into because you are your greatest asset. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and the Dr. Drew Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash drew. Again, for 10% off for the first month, that is betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash drew. Did you know that aging actually begins in our cells? Of course it does. It's our cells that age. That's how we age. Many aspects of our daily life can influence how well our trillions of cells perform and ultimately how we age. Age-associated cellular decline, or AACD, is the time-related deterioration in the way our cells function as we age, beginning in our 40s and accelerating in our 60s. Over time, our cellular processes become less efficient and can contribute to things like fatigue, reduced muscle strength, impaired cellular defenses. To help address these changes, try incorporating nutrients that work on the cellular level into your wellness routine. Celtrient Cellular Nutrition is a breakthrough range of nutritional products with cellular nutrients. To help address these changes, try incorporating nutrients that work on the cellular level into your wellness routine. Celtrient Cellular Nutrition is a breakthrough range of nutritional products with cellular nutrients to target cellular performance. Celtrient is the first brand to provide a range of cellular nutrients, including nicotinamide riboside, urolithin A, glycine, plus N-acetylcysteine to combat key components of the AACD. Visit Celtrient.com for more info to find out which Celtrient products are right for you. That is C-E-L-L-T-R-I-E-N-T dot com. Use code Dr. Drew 10 for a 10% discount. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. That's right, pocket-sized guides that help you sleep, focus, act, be better. There it is. It is Headspace, the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Let's say you need some help falling asleep. Headspace has wind-down sessions. I love this stuff. Headspace approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, as I said, improve focus. It's backed by 25 studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash drew. Again, that is headspace.com slash D-R-E-W for a free one-month trial. That's amazing. You'll have access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. Again, you've tried meditation and it didn't work, or maybe you felt like you were doing something wrong. Well, I want this to be a part of your mental health practices. And when you have the proper app, it becomes easy. So head to headspace.com slash Drew for that free one-month trial. Again, it is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash Drew today. I had a really interesting experience writing a nonfiction fiction. <laughs> it, it was uh, it was a book, it, you know, sort of based on my life treating patients in a, in a drug unit, and uh, but it was everything was fictionalized. I you know composited people and did lots of you know sleights of hand in terms of, but still, I mean, some of the characters were familiar to me in terms of kinds of things I would see or kinds of staff I worked with that kind of thing, and uh, it happened because. I was outlining a book, and Judith Regan goes, "Have dinner with me. Let's have lunch." And I go, "Okay." And she had that. She had the treatment on the desk with her, and she goes, "Who did this? This is a piece of shit. This somebody told you to write this. That this isn't what I want you to write." And I go, "Well, people told me I should write something like that. It was essentially a book on narcissism that I wrote ten years later." And uh, she goes, "Write me twenty pages," and, and I go, "On what?" She goes, "Just twenty pages," and I literally went running 
and dictated a story into my dictaphone, and this character and a story emerged. I went home and read it down. She goes, this is your book. And she, <laughs> then she goes, keep writing. And <laughs> that turned out to be the only direction she gave me across the arc of this book, and it was one of the most extraordinary experiences I've ever had. She kept meeting with me, and we talk and chat, and she goes, keep, keep going, keep writing. And, and I, I mean, it's incredible. That's a great, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, that, it sounds like she saw something. I mean, that's what a good editor can do. See something that you didn't even know you had and, and, and sort of spool it out of you. Yeah, yeah. And it was the most creative process I ever have been engaged in. Cause I didn't know, I just was just whatever was coming out of me. I was sort of shaping and forming and, and, um, nine 11 happened right in the middle of it. And oh. I, and I could not write a word for three months after that. It was very strange. It was really interesting that there's something about that kind of a creative process that requires all the parts of your brain to be hooked up and the emotional centers have to be ready and open to, to do it properly, right? I think that's right. I think fiction is harder than nonfiction for sure, that you have to be, you have to be willing to, to really suffer sometimes to, to get it out. I mean, maybe, look, there are people who can just write and it just no, not me. Play out not of me. them, but I'm yeah. not one of them. Yeah, me neither. So let's talk about uh, the world we're in a little bit. Uh, where would you like to go with this? <laughs> There's a lot you and I could talk about. Well, why, why don't you tell me? How are you feeling? Like, uh, you, I'm you, feeling you look good. Actually, I, I look better. I, I had I had moderate to severe COVID. Uh, Bamlanivimab, monoclonal antibody, turned me around with some dexamethasone. I was treated uh, early with uh, ivermectin and doxycycline hydroxychloroquine. Ivermectin seemed to make a little difference. The bamlanivimab, the monoclonal antibody, made a massive difference. And doctors are only What's that? What's that, Gary? Oh, we're recording this. Uh, Gary's uh, leaning in here on February third in the afternoon, and I got sick on Christmas Eve, um, and was really sick for three weeks. Could not get out of bed. I mean, just the, the, had the flu first, and then I had this inflammatory thing that followed up after about four days. That was pulmonary and neurological. Where I just, I was out of it, man. I was just. Ugh. But uh, steroids help. Bamlanivimab really helped. And what I was going to say was, I'm still I'm astonished that physicians have any resistance to using the monoclonal antibodies, and they work like right. crazy. And there was actually just some publications that came out today that again, like what used use the bamlanivimab, use Regeneron. It works. There's phase three trials looking great. It's already purchased by the government, and it and right. it's available to everybody. It doesn't cost anything. It's the most and people are people are afraid it's going to interfere with the vaccines too. Right? I, there's or some nonsense. weird thing like that that has come up once in a while, but not in any real significant legitimate way. But the, just yeah, you got to get us out of the hospital and survive this thing. I mean, that's the bottom line. Just stay out of the hospital. Don't take a hospital bed. I I never had any question about surviving, which by the way was always an interesting thing to me. People go, "Are you scared? Are you scared?" I go, "I'm not scared. It's a 99 percent survival for my profile, even with moderate COVID. It's maybe 98 percent." When a doctor tells you you have 98%, he's telling you don't worry about it. Don't even think about it. I, I, I tell people when I had my prostate out, uh, the surgeon sat down. He said 90% probability of cured. And I knew from my peer that was telling me I'm cured. And if, he had said, if he had said 99%, he would have been like, don't even – never think about it again. It's never coming around. And so 99% survival was what was in my head. But I was sort of uh, – interested in how much morbidity and injury and misery there was associated with something that no one's talking about. And that's a higher percentage. The, the morbidity of this thing is quite interesting. Uh, and we have to find ways to reduce that too. And so right now I have, I have shortness of breath. I can only, I can only do th anything for about 30 to 60 minutes. Then I have to lie down. 
Uh, I have huh. sort of cognitive fatiguing where I just all of a sudden just can't go any further. I, I, I can't do anything in sequence. I have to lie down for half hour to an hour between any activities. Hmm. And, um, and I have personality changes and I'm irritable and, you know, just not myself is at that, all. Is that possibly the steroids or? Uh, or no, or, the steroids or, were weeks and weeks ago, right? That was a long time ago. So I started fluvoxamine yesterday. Uh, and Luvox. And so, and immediately, like within 20 minutes, the ringing in my ears went away, which was fascinating. It just went away, which is kind of interesting because the tinnitus has been driving me crazy as part of this. It feels like a traumatic brain injury. That's what it feels like. Like, so I got whacked in the head. I'm just waiting for the concussion symptoms to settle down, which takes a long time, as you know, right? Yes, yes. So, so what are you focused in on now? I see you on Twitter going off on certain stuff. I think mostly it's vaccine, vaccine safety. Yeah, so, so so right now I'm talking a lot about the vaccines. And, you know, Here's a crazy thing are, for, for me. I, I people are now accusing me of being an anti-vaxxer, which oh I am not an anti-vaxxer. Okay? Oh I was vaccinated as a child. My children were vaccinated uh, you know, with all the standard vaccines on all the standard dosing. To me, raising questions about an experimental therapy that didn't exist a year ago does not make you an anti-anything. It makes right. you a journalist and a skeptic who sh- who's asking necessary questions. And I think people are confused about what the clinical trials showed and didn't show about these vaccines. Yeah. And I think that uh, I think that the the adverse event reports and the adverse event rates are quite high. Obviously, I mean that's what the, the trials did show. That most the, mostly you know, the, in now now we're seeing it mostly in people that have had COVID though, right? Well, it, really it seems like stuff. it's worse if you had COVID, yeah. and I and I also think that the Israeli experience should be should be should be very concerning to anybody who's in the camp that says everybody should get a vaccine because Israel, um, you know, they vaccinated almost everybody now who's over uh, who's over sixty, uh, really almost everybody who's over seventy. Um, most of those people have gotten two doses. A substantial number of those people got two doses more than two weeks ago. And they are not seeing a real shift in their epidemic. Hmm. Whereas right now in the U.S., cases are down almost 50% in the last three weeks. Worldwide, it looks like this second wave, third wave, whatever you want to call it, has now peaked and passed. And in Israel, the place you expect it to be the best because of the vaccines, it's the opposite. Now, I'm not saying, you know, people want to say to me, oh, you're saying that the vaccines give people COVID or, you know, you're some crazy anti No, I'm not saying that at all. My concerns come out of the clinical trial data and they come out of the adverse event reports and they come out of what we're seeing in Israel. It's always data driven for me. And and I say to people, and I mean this, if in two weeks cases have crashed in Israel, that'll be great. Honestly, at this point, it's been long enough that I don't even know if you'll be able to give the vaccines credit if that happens, but we should all hope that happens. Well, one of the crazy things about this virus is it, it seems to have its own, I call it ecology. Like it has its own behavior in the environment, right? It comes up and it goes down. And and people point at all kinds of things. You wore a mask, it went down. You didn't wear a mask, it went up. You traveled, you had a gathering at Thanksgiving. I don't know that any of that had anything to do with anything necessarily. That's right. This thing just does what it does. So I'm wondering if in Israel it's doing something, but it's in younger people or something or something different than what we normally see because the older ones are vaccinated. It's a, that's a that's a great question. Um, unfortunately, right now the data suggests that you know it's both younger and older people who are continuing to get sick. Uh, and you know, th- there's some the the best news from the vaccine point of view is that you know if you look at sort of fragmentary data about populations that 
you know, were vaccinated fairly early. Some people are arguing there's been a bigger decrease in cases in those populations. The problem is those people are likely to have been healthier going in. And even if they're older, they're likely to have been more health conscious. You know, this is the issue with flu vaccines. And, and frankly, I didn't know this until I started looking at this data a few weeks ago. And it was uh, it's kind of sad to me, actually, to, to have learned this, that, you know, flu vaccines, there's not really strong data that they actually help people over 65. People over 65 who get the flu vaccine are less likely to die after getting it. But they are also less likely to die before getting it. They are a healthier population, and it becomes very hard to sort that out epidemiologically. And so, you know, with COVID right now, we just don't know how well these vaccines work on a population basis. What okay. we also know is there are a lot of adverse events. So, and, so, so hold. And, let me let me let me spool you back to the uh, influenza. So, so yes. that's why we're giving higher dose vaccine now to elderly people, right? That we've changed our approach to that. And influenza is a very different illness. It's spread by children, yep. and so it's a very different thing than this, right? Uh, I, I, I absolutely, absolutely, I agree. The problem is if. If the reason the flu vaccine doesn't work in, you know, in, the, in some subset of elderly people is that they can't mount a good immune response to the vaccine, if that's true in COVID, if there's some population of people who aren't mounting a good immune response to the vaccine, you would expect that those would be exactly the same people who have such a terrible problem with COVID. Well, so, 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 words, so if, hold if, on. If, so that's what I want to point out is that the, yeah. this is one of the things that bothers me about the studies. The mRNA vaccines use one endpoint severe covid j and j used moderate and severe do you see that um i i'd actually have to disagree with you there the the mrna uh, vaccines generally used mild or moderate oh uh, what that that really? had huge imbalance and i i can show you this uh in the in the briefing books when they say 162 cases versus uh eight or whatever i think that's right 162 versus eight those were almost all mild or moderate. And in fact, even the definition of severe that they used mm. uh, in general had to do with oxygen saturation. Most, there were only nine people, nine, Dr. Drew, mm. out of 15,000 people in the placebo arm of the, uh, of the Moderna trial who were hospitalized. Mm. Nine out of 15,000. Mm-hmm. When people say nobody died of COVID in who got the vaccine in these trials, they're telling the truth. Mm-hmm. What they're not telling you is that nobody or one person, I think in the case of the Moderna trial died in the placebo arm because they enrolled a group of people who are way, way healthier than the people who died from COVID. And if I, I will say, you know, I don't usually like to say if I were in charge, I would do, I would have done X or Y. I will say this. If I'd been at the FDA or if I'd been, you know, sort of at Operation Warp Speed, I would have said to these companies, you are going to enroll 5,000 people in nursing homes. Mm. We are going to find out if this actually saves lives. And to do that, we need to look at the people who actually die from it. They did not want to do that, I presume, because it would have taken longer and maybe because there would have been deaths in the vaccine arm in that case. Mm-hmm. But there would have been deaths in the placebo arm too. And then we would have known. This is my biggest criticism with this. And I keep making it over and over again. And I don't care if that makes me sound like an anti-vaxxer. To me, it's somebody who's it's trying to talk about proper clinical trial procedures. Well, I wonder if they designed these studies the way they normally design vaccine studies, right? Where there's not that same stratification. Right. Uh, and so they just did what they normally do. 
It looked good. Let's proceed. Let's go. Uh, and I don't think you're wrong, but I wonder if based on experience, in other words, they could predict based on their previous experience developing vaccines, that they could re- feel pretty secure about at least adverse events going forward. Uh, and, and, and the fact that the endpoints, we need to do something here, right? We need to try to <laughs> mitigate the spread somehow that the endpoints were less important. Hey, look how they rolled it out. They rolled it out, right. not with interest in saving lives. That's not That's their right. interest. That is That's not right. the priority. They, in fact, they that was ignored. Did. You're yeah. absolutely right about that. They yeah. should have rolled it out to older people first. Yeah. That, you yeah. know, it's uh, Look, this idea that we have to do something to me is so I, I agree. I, I agree. That's what got us in this mess. No, I agree with you. And, and I, I was saying when Mark Galley here, who's the clinical director of, of uh, public health here in California, was uh, sued for closing down the restaurants and the outdoor dining, he was literally on the record. They said, there's no data that suggests anything is being spread outdoors. He goes, I know, I just need people to stop moving around. <laughs> he, he said that. And, right. and we had to do something. We have to and, do something. Yeah, no, and, and, you don't and, actually I, you, have to you, do something. You're right. However, this is the craziness in this whole thing. Here's, the, here's my craziness. When, my resi- when I was teaching, when my residents, when I'd ask them why you do that, if they said I had to do something, I would crucify them. That, that is the worst thing you could say as a clinician. you got to go... My, here was my first decision. It failed. It didn't work. Here's why it didn't work. Here's my thinking on what I was going to do next. With can include nothing. And nothing is also a good move. But you kill people by just doing something. That's how you kill people. On the other hand, I've got peers in medicine now who aren't willing to do anything, which is the weirdest thing in the world. I've never seen anything like this, where we're trained to improvise and do the best we can based on currently available knowledge for the patient in the moment, they're waiting for orthodoxy and direction from corporate guidance and all kinds of craziness and doing Is that nothing. a liability issue, you think? I, or, uh... I don't because we've been living with insurance companies and liabilities for so long. I've never seen this kind of fear-based ossification. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, we opened this, we had a little conversation about the um, monoclonal antibodies. I mean, they should be using that. The fact that two-thirds of the supply is sitting on the shelf is insane. Either they're not reading the literature, which I don't believe that to be true, or they're afraid to do anything, which I find to be categorically true. So it's it's so I don't know how we reconcile. We got to do something with I'm afraid to do anything because neither is good. Neither is good. It was, both are terrible. Ugh. So what do we do, Alex? I mean, help me. <laughs> you know, look, that is true. But on the other hand, you know, and I, and I sort of, you sort of look at the over response to COVID that we have to do something in response. And I put it in the context of, and look, I'm not a physician. So there are going to be people who are physicians who just dismiss me on that basis alone. And I get that, but look at, look at opioids. Okay. Look at, oh, the, don't look even. at the crisis. Don't of go opioids. there. Don't make and, me but, do that. Where did that begin? That began with, <laughs> we've got to treat these people's pain. We've no, got no. to do you know, something. You know, we got out of control. They, they stopped it the same way they started it. They put they they stepped around malpractice insurance and and criminally uh, uh, and civilly went after doctors for inadequate treatment of pain. Doctors were put in jail. Doctors were fined millions of dollars. And in a month, doctors said, "I I can't prescribe. You got to go see a pain specialist." That was it. That was the end of it. And I was there when Jeff Sessions says, "You know, I'm going to stop this thing." And he put some doctors in jail for overprescribing. Boom! It stopped right there. Doctors are spooked. They spook very easily. And something about that is a feature of what's happening right now with COVID. Right. Yeah. So, right. Some similar psychology is operating. Um, well, I, I hope the, you know, we, 
we we who are not physicians are depending on uh, the medical profession to sort some of this out. Well, it's it's getting pretty wacky. So as you as you look across the pandemic, what have been the? I mean, I know you've sort of zeroed in on three or four different sort of sources of outrage during the course of this yes, thing. Yes. If you were to list them, what what would they have been? Well, I mean, so look, I've gotten some things right. I've gotten some things wrong for sure. Me too. The thing that I am proudest of in in my you know work in the last year was I was very early and very aggressively talking about reopening schools. Mm. And it was very clear, even as early as late April of last year, mm-hmm. that there was not much danger to kids here. Um, and that we should have the schools open, that the, that the, that the harms, the academic harms, the social harms, yeah. the harms of depression and anxiety, that, that all of those things were much, much greater than any risk to kids. Yeah. And frankly, you know, now we have the, te- the teachers have sort of dropped their masks. They, they don't, so to speak, they don't, they, they're not worried about what's going to happen to kids. They want their risk to be zero which is totally unrealistic. And by the way, most of them are very low risk anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, but, you know, they're frightened and their unions, I, look, they're also very good teachers out there. There are mm-hmm. many good teachers out there, but the unions either are representing the interests of the most frightened people, or they're using this as a way to get more money and, you right. know, more days off or whatever it is that they want. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, but, but the schools should be open. They should never have closed really. And they certainly shouldn't have been closed for more than a, a few weeks. It's and funny. They should have reopened yep. in September at the latest. And it is crazy that we're still talking about this. Yep. So, uh, I, so to me, you can tell me I'm a jerk and you can tell me I don't, you know, I don't care about people who died from COVID, which is not true, but you can tell me all those things, but don't tell me I'm wrong about the schools. Yeah. The, the, I was there when they closed it. Someone from the school board, I do a nightly show on a local news program here, no, out with it here. And this school board member came in and said, "We're closing the schools." I was like, "Where, where did that come from? Did, did come somebody, from? did somebody did, from the C, did a doctor make that decision? No, we just think it's the right thing to do." I thought, "Did you see, Doctor Drew? This happened today. The city of San Francisco has now sued the school board of San Francisco to get right. the schools reopened." Right, right. And I mean, so, so the I mean, school board, so the school board member, I interviewed him a week ago. He was like. We need to open these schools. I go, yeah, you should have closed them in the first place. I can't. And then under his breath, guess what? Talks about the school, the teachers' unions, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then I talked yeah. to another school board or, or I don't think it was a school board or a district leader or something who's opening schools. Well, two hours a day, kindergarten through second grade. Oh, my God. That's not opening schools. I know. I know. You know so, listen, I, I feel so passionately about this. My kids are, they, they go to school outside, okay? <laughs> because, you know, that, that they have in-person school. But, I mean, it's outside, which is sort of insane in the Northeast, you know, in February. But they are seeing other kids. They are learning with other kids. And that's what counts. Yeah. And, you know, we bundle them up and we send them off. And, and, and by the way, I mean, I mean, other than the teachers being at risk, they're not at risk. They don't get that's serious. Right. You, would be, you would be at risk. You would be at risk. getting frostbite. But, but yeah, but if I were you, I'd happily take that risk on behalf of my kids, you know? Yeah. Um, so what got, what'd you get wrong? Uh, what did I get wrong? Uh, the number one thing I got wrong, I'd say, which I still get beaten over the head about is you can go back and look at some of my tweets from, uh, April of last year. And, you know, at the time, the, uh, the, 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 some of the models were saying 40 or 60,000 dead. And I said, you know, that looks, that seems more or less right to me. Mm-hmm. So obviously there have been way more than 40 or 60,000 yeah. dead. Yeah. Um, uh, now, well, I didn't anticipate, oh, we're going to have a second wave here. We're going to have a third. Wave. I should have, I should have realized that, you know, by the time I wrote the first unreported truce booklet, 
I was saying, you know, I think the worst case scenario here could be 600,000 dead in the U.S. Mm. Um, I'd like to think that number, you know, could still hold, especially with cases going down, you know, deaths going down now and this third wave seemingly petering out. But we'll see. Um, but but I've learned don't be predictive about the toll of the virus because the the virus makes fools of, of right only the virus knows right it could it could from here spike back up again who knows i mean yes. that that ecology yes. so, we were so that, talking that, about that was a mistake yeah. um and uh, no no I, you know, mistake yeah mistake and you learn something updated your priors good that's yes. what science is that's what thinking is i hope i hope so i mean here here's another thing that i'm sort of passionate about why aren't the live arts open? Okay. Why, if you're 26 years old and basically zero risk from this, why can't you go to a concert? You know, we, we're destroying, we're destroying a whole, you know, generation of musicians and artists here. And, and why are we travel banning? Okay. The thing is everywhere. Listen, if you're New Zealand and you want to pretend that, you know, you can keep it out for the rest of the, you know, for the next 20 years. Okay, fine. Have at it. But why can't you get on a plane and fly from the U S to, you know, to Mexico or, or, or the UK. I mean, you can do these things, but why do you have to worry about getting tested on the way back? This thing is all over. It is stupid to try well, to, to, you know, to I, cut, I'll to tell cut you the travel. thing that, that I'm running into that I find egregious, but not surprising, which is the bureaucratization of all of this. Yes. So, so, so that school that's getting the kids back for K through second grade, that's because the bureaucracy tells them that's how they have to do it. Well, why did yep. they decide that? What, some doctor decided that? No, this is just their guidelines. Oh, okay. Well, some lawyer guidelines. decided it probably. Right, that's right. And so, and so, it certainly was a physician. And, and so when I want to travel, I have 100% neutralizing antibodies at a level 10 times vaccine levels. I had, I had a full immune profile then. My, my antibody levels are just, just crazy, and they're 100% neutralizing antibodies. I am immune at this moment. Now, I mean, let's right. stay immune. At this moment, I'm immune. For me yeah. to travel, I have to take the vaccine. Obliged to take the vaccine. There's no paperwork I can offer them. There's no bureaucratic appeal. So, so insane. And it's so dangerous stupid. to you. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous to yeah, you. That's right. Thank God that kind of travel I'm probably going to do in about three or four months when probably it's okay to get the vaccine then and the Johnson Johnson will be available. I'm sort of enthusiastic about that one. Well, I'm welcoming you back, Dr. Noelle Reed. She's a board-certified family medicine physician, consulting physician for Celtrian Cellular Nutrition. You heard she and I talking recently about Celtrian, going to Celtrian.com and getting more information there if you guys were interested. I hope you were because cellular aging, cellular senescence, that is what you're looking at on the outside when uh, things started breaking down. And uh, I have actually been had my eye on many of these compounds for quite some time. And some of them I take and have taken on a regular basis. So let me bring Dr. Reed back in to tell you about Celtrian Strength. Talk to us about that. Sure. Thanks for having me again, Dr. Drew. You bet. Cellular Celtrian strength. Um, I think we all know that as we get older, um, we we kind of lose our, our pep in our step, right? Uh, yeah, a <laughs> little bit. Not, not as fast as maybe we used to be. Um, and even when we're when we're athletic and we, we do things, I'm a yogi, I do yoga three, four times a week. Um, and still there are days where I'm like, I, I need some energy. Yes, I hear you. <laughs> um, and muscle stamina. And so um, I think that oftentimes we think that maybe we need more muscle mass, you know, uh, in order to, to do better mm-hmm. in terms of 
function. But that's not necessarily the case. I think that we really need to also know what's happening at the cellular level because it's not just the mass of the muscle, but how well those muscle cells are working. So So this is also part of age-associated cellular cellular decline. Our, Our mitochondria need a little boost. Exactly. So when the mitochondria decline in, in, in each type of cell, you can imagine when that energy producer is not functioning as well, the cell doesn't function as well. So the tissues and organs that that cell make up do not function at its peak level of performance. So deep inside our body, there are important natural processes that may become less efficient. And so one of these is the quality control process known as metophagy. Okay, and so that's the recycling process of mitochondria, where underperforming mitochondria are removed from the cell and new ones are regenerated. And we know that we need efficient mitochondrial function in order for muscle strength to be at its peak level of performance. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. They, instead of getting rid of the ones that are underperforming and let's build up some new ones. Exactly. And so there are certain cellular nutrients that can be helpful to, to allow for this process to work, to work well and at its peak level performance. So, yes, proper nutrition needs to be in place. We need to get in our micronutrients, so vitamins and minerals and macronutrients, the proteins, carbs, fat that we need to meet our basic nutritional needs, but they have their limitations. They may not be able to penetrate at the cellular level and impact mitochondrial function. And that's where cellular nutrients come in, such as urolithin A. Have you heard of that before, Dr. Drew? I have heard of that, actually. Tell us about it. So urolithin A is actually a cellular nutrient that we do synthesize ourselves to a certain extent. So when we eat certain foods like pomegranates, berries, nuts. These foods contain a compound known as elicotannins. And when the elicotannins come in contact with our gut flora, the microbiome in our gut, urolithin A can be synthesized. However, only one in three adults have the right microbiome in order to produce the urolithin A that we need. And that's why supplementing can be very helpful and be the right choice uh, to improve our overall mitochondrial function within our skeletal muscle cells. Is that the main ingredient of the cell tree and strength or are there other products other elements there as well that is the main ingredient so cell tree and cellular strength contains 500 milligrams of urolithin a mm. um, and that's the recommended daily dose and so that can be achieved with two capsules daily or two drink mixes so it comes in two forms capsule or a, a mixed in powder form and actually there was a clinical trial that was published in 2019 that showed that 500 milligrams a day of urolithin A increased markers of metophagy, that recycling process of mitochondria mm-hmm. in cells and older adults. And then there was a second clinical trial that found in healthy middle-aged adults, also when they supplemented with 500 milligrams a day of urolithin A, improved hamstring muscle strength after four months of supplementation. So this has been clinically proven, this particular ingredient or this, cell, cell, this cellular nutrient to improve overall um, function of muscle cells. Now, in the mixed uh, powder form, just to mention, because you asked where there are other sure. ingredients. Yes. It does contain magnesium. Okay. And so you know that magnesium does play an essential role in regulating, uh, you know, contraction and relaxation of muscle. Well, I am uh, going immediately and going to start <laughs> this because I need to see what happens to my squats. Uh, so thank you for that, uh, Dr. Noel Reed. Visit Celltreant.com for more info and take a short quiz under the Find Your Celltreant tab. Discover which Celltreant products fix your needs. I'm going to do that right now. And then use that promo code DrDrew10 for 10% discount. Again, Celtriant.com. Find your Celtriant and then use the code DrDrew10 at checkout. As a leader in the CBD industry, Hemp Fusion is committed to providing high-quality, THC-free CBD oil products. 
Whether your New Year's resolution is going for a raise or an Olympic gold medal, you need to stay at the top of your game. And with so many world-class athletes turning to Hemp Fusion, you can be sure you're getting a safe, clean product. From tinctures to topicals to capsules, they've got something for everyone. I use a lot of the topical agents for my shoulder particularly, and it works quite well. I've given it to patients for joint pain, and my wife uses it occasionally for sleep. To make it even easier to accomplish your New Year's resolution, Hemp Fusion is offering my listeners 20% off your first purchase when you use that promo code DREW at checkout. Once again, Hemp Fusion, H-E-M-P-F-U-S-I-O-N, HempFusion.com, promo code DREW, for 20% off your order of premium CBD oil products from Hemp Fusion. By the way, do you have a favorite vaccine? Well, I, I would not, you know, people ask me, what would you take? I would not take the mRNA vaccines. Um, uh, I, and I would certainly not let my children take those vaccines. Um, you know, I know people think the J&J, uh, you know, it's sort of this adenovirus vector. It's not exactly the same. It's still somewhat novel. And I will say the efficacy doesn't look quite as strong, although it's hard to know because it's one dose versus two. Um, also, also of the three countries they studied, one was South Africa. Yes, which, so that there is could true. have been some resistance stuff in there. So, I mean, if you, listen, if you said to me you have to take one of these, I would go with J and J. How but, about Novavax? But uh, you know that uh, you know they enrolled fifteen thousand people in England. Yeah. Do you know how many people were hospitalized in okay. the placebo arm? How many? One. One. Okay, so who are they? Who are they enrolling? Like, how is any of this data any good? Um, you know, so uh, I just I want to see I want to see publications at least of the J and J and the Novavax uh, data. And you and you saw with AstraZeneca, the Europeans don't even believe there's efficacy in people over or that it was demonstrated in anybody over sixty five. Right. I mean, you know, so they, they, I if again, if you made me take a vaccine, I guess I'd go with J and J, but. Uh, right now, my preferred choice is I'll get this and be so, done with it. So I'm going to follow my antibodies over the next few months and take a vaccine two weeks before I travel just because I have to. And we'll, and I hope my vaccines have petered out by then because I will have a reaction. There's no doubt That's in right. my mind. You I, I am you will. I am prone to this shit. And I've just went through something awful. I'd rather not do that again. Thank you. Um, and I'm not going to based on my own innate immunity. But the bureaucracy says you must go through that. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Yeah, but it's what's crazy that people have accepted this. Okay. Well, and, that's the you know, that's the general social. Yeah. Well, all right. So let's wrap up with this conversation about what we're heading into the new normal, or what the are we going to be better than before, or we gonna, the way we were, kind of thing. Um, we have we have we have become sheep in so many ways. It, yes. It's really kind of extraordinary, and one of those is our capitulation to bureaucratic excesses just profound bureaucratic excesses i don't know how to fight it uh yes i don't i don't know either and that's why you know there's this again there's this theory oh well we're going to come out of this and you know everyone's going to have sex like crazy and it's going to be you know it's going to be like 1924 there's going to be flappers look unfortunately i never thought i'd say this like teen teen and young adult sex was in secular decline Mm -hmm. for a decade before this Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. you know the they're all on their phones all the time and they and they aren't sleeping together which actually turns out to be kind of a bad thing right. and and you're if you're telling me that after a year of being told that other human beings are you know disgusting disease vectors to be avoided 
that that these people are going to snap back with no you know with no sort of psychological impact from that. I I don't believe that. How old are your how old are your, year, how old are your kids? Uh, they are eight, five, okay. and, and one. So, so and so, you know so okay. hopefully they're young enough that yeah. things will go back to normal before yeah. you know before they're old enough to know better. But, but so I, I have millennials uh, and and two males and they they're they already were mostly scared by. Um, the Me Too, essentially the Me Too thing. They ha- they right. didn't want to be seen as rapacious or anything. They wanted to do the right thing, which ended up being nothing because they were scared. That's, that's interesting. That's a, that's an interesting. I hadn't considered that aspect of it, but that's obviously a problem too or an issue. It, it, it they want to do what's right. They want to be they want to be seen by their peers as doing it right and what being you know. But it it it's put a gigantic barrier between males and females where the guys are just scared. They don't know what as, they're supposed uh, to know, do. I, I don't, I, I don't know what, what turns this around. Um, and, and, you know, I, you, I mean, for somebody like me, and I think somebody like you, it's hard to imagine that there, there is, there's a substantial minority of the country still that is living in abject fear of this thing. Yeah, they, they, People who, we they, could do another, we could do it. Yeah. We could do another hour on the mental health consequences of this, which have yeah. just been insane. So how do they come back from it? Cause, yeah. cause you know, they were told the vaccines were going to save them. But now if, again, if you look at the data, even assuming sort of a best case scenario, the vaccines will knock this thing back, but they are not going to eliminate it. And so right. our, our pe- people are just going to have to realize that. Yes, that that listen, if we were if we were living 75 years ago and your child got a sore throat, one of the thoughts in your head would be, do I need to plan a funeral? Just the, right. just a sore throat, because that's how bad infectious diseases were through human history. Yep. And we've lived without that for 75 years. And we have forgotten that we are mortal and that we are biological. And uh, we, we've got to get back to accepting that. I, I don't understand I'm not saying that we should accept death or accept pandemics and not do anything about them. I'm just saying we have to have to have better sense about what living more is. perspective, yeah, right? perspective on what it is yeah. to live and how we live and what what the risks are of all. I mean, when I went back in the you know the days of rhetoric of one death is too many, I thought really. Then we have to stop driving cars. We have to stop. We have to. We have to stop everything. One death is too many. That we have to stop everything now. One death is too many, but we are tolerating. You know, overdose deaths are probably up oh. somewhere from thirty to fifty percent last year. Don't I mean, even, it's horrific. Don't even start me. Yeah, don't. You even. know, and, and and people, you know. So I'll say, you know, go. You went back to this. What were things I got right? Well, I think I got masks right. I think it's been sort of empirically proven now that masks are effectively useless. I mean, that's what the that's what the lab studies said. And if you look at, you know how California, the cases rose and fell everywhere else. Mask mandates seem to make no difference. And now what are, what are we saying to people? Wear two masks. And people are not looking at that and laughing and saying, if you told me, you know, you told me for a year that one mask would do it. Now you're telling me I have to wear two masks. This doesn't make any sense. You're right. Like somehow the all knowing bureaucracy is people are just, I, I, you hate, I hate to say sheep, but people are very accepting of what they're being told to do. And and, and I, I'll tell you, my position is masks do something, maybe not as much as we'd like, so fine, I'll wear a mask. Secondly- You're going to wear two? I don't wear two, but I, I should be wearing an N. Well, who cares now? I've been sick. I'm done. That's I'm, right. I'm good. <laughs> but, I, but I did get sick wearing the mask. I wore it religiously. So I got sick wearing the mask. Um, and, uh, and life as we know it, I believe, will be back soon, within six months. Whether or not there will be an exuberance with it, I think in certain areas there will be. I think people will be more happy to go out and spend money in restaurants. I'm dying to travel. 
Uh, those of us that have been sick, it changes your priorities. You just want to feel better and just go live. I also want other people to live. I had this very strange emotional reaction when I was in bed thinking, okay, I'm taking the bullet. I'm, de- I'm down on the battlefield. Fine. I'll, it's good to happen to me. But God damn it, I want everyone else to live. If I've got to be injured, I want the rest of you to live. Oh, the government's that's, closing that's your lives down? I, I, Shit. That, that was almost overwhelming emotionally, like too much. I, I hope more people feel that way. I mean, you do see with some of these long COVID people, they become just obsessed with their own well, that, health and I, telling I, you how miserable they feel. I, you know what? I'm a long COVID technically right now, and I'm sick of how much I talk about it. Sick <laughs> of it. It, it, it. It's it's uncanny how pervasive the symptoms are, how weird they are, and and it's disabling, and it's, it's, it's impaired. I feel impaired all the time. And that, and you I just, seem fine, I have to tell you. you I, I, I am good until I'm suddenly not. I'll go for like an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and then boom, i got to lie down. And, and I'm just sort of learning to deal with that now, so that's good. At least I can do that. So, Well, Alex, we will get the book. I will read the book. The book is The Power Couple. I know already it's going to be a TV show. I can feel it. Uh, <laughs> I can see it coming. I, I hope so. I, there's an actress who's interested. I can't tell you who it is, oh, but it would know be, it. It'd be a big name, and I, a big, I would love to get I her. I so. smell it. <laughs> Uh, congratulations on that. And uh, Gary, you were shaking your head vigorously when I said we should do another show on the mental health effects with Alex. You want to do that? Okay, so Gary will bother you again maybe in a couple weeks to do another show on the mental health impact of all this. Cause Absolutely, and continue to, continue to feel better, man. I, yeah, I do. Week to week, I can see that I'm better. And I started a new medication today that's very experimental. A lot of what I've done is I want to I give the patient perspective and push things forward. So if I respond to this medication then I can go out and talk about it and talk about what happened to me and that kind of thing. I think it's beneficial for people. So it gives gives me purpose in all this, so that's good. All right, Alex, we will talk soon. Good luck with everything. Thank you, sir. Be good. All right. And uh, that's that. We'll see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.